एवरीवन हेलो एवरीवन वेलकम टू द ब्राइट टॉक ओरिजिनल्स इनॉग्रल एपिसोड ऑफ द सीरीज द आर्टिफिशियल इंटेलिजेंस द फ्यूचर ऑफ बिजनेस आई एम रमेश दांता योर होस्ट फॉर टुडेज पैनल आई एम द फाउंडर एंड मैनेजिंग पार्टनर ऑफ डिजिटल ट्रांसफॉर्मेशन प्रो डॉट कॉम एडिशनली आई एम एन ऑथर ए पार्ट such as ai ai was considered an experimental technology until very recently but within the last few years though it has become a transformative technology ai is seeing a stunning growth of investment with expectations of two and a half times investment in the next couple of years that's according to idc that's two and a half times than what we are already investing today in spite of that many believe we are still on the ground floor with ai notwithstanding the promise of ai many challenges still remain foremost among these is a lack of understanding about ai across organizations what is ai what can it do which business functions and industries will benefit the most from ai in today's episode we will focus on these basic but very important questions again we want to make it a very interactive discussions so please feel free to send in your questions through the chat window there and to peel this onion peel these layers i'm excited to uh, announce our you know uh, seasoned experts who, who actually practice ai so here are today's panel members paul kovalsik is a senior data scientist at solve jeremy farre is a vice president advanced analytics and artificial intelligence at inmind technologies and david yakubovich is a data science team lead at galvanize and also a podcast host on ai welcome good afternoon good morning good day <laughs> all right so paul with uh, david and jeremy with that uh, in interaction and ai a lot of questions that people are asking so let's get uh, right into it the very first question that i have is that uh, the ai is, is considered as a trans, uh, transformative and experimental technology for quite some time and but how are we transitioning from this realm of science fiction uh, and to everyday business so paul let's start with you well ranesh thank you for the introduction um in the work that i do and the data that i'm exposed to i think what's starting to happen is folks are coming to appreciate that they have more data then they can consume curate and somehow act on and so they're using artificial intelligence machine learning uh, data mining as tools akin to other laboratory instruments to do something with that data to to build actionable insights and so i think what they're trying to do is people use different words productionize they they put everything around it but i think where the rubber meets the road what 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 people are coming to understand is there is simply more data than you can put into spreadsheets and somehow stare at at one point in time and you don't want to lose anything um i think the insights still come from humans but a lot of the repetitive work that might essentially bore a practitioner after time is just something computers excel at 
and so I see it that that what's starting to happen is is people are starting to use the tools and techniques to understand the data they have, mm-hmm. and then to build or draw actionable insights from those practices, from those activities, and then that becomes the um, personification is not the right word. The actions of data science, AI, and machine learning. So you're seeing it very practical, Jeremy. Um, what do you What do you think about it? Well, I think it's a very interesting point that there's too much data to go around with classical approaches. I completely support what was just said brilliantly by Paul. I will add that uh, new practices in IoT, in manufacturing 4.0, are adding that gigantic flow of information that needs to be treated very often with very high frequency and with extremely large volumes. Uh, an automated vehicle, for instance, we talk a lot about those over the latest days, uh, produces terabytes of information. And uh, for the entire IoT volume that gets produced, uh, there's estimates uh, uh, that about 3% of this data gets processed and gets its way back into centralized analysis and BI or decisional intelligence. So uh, this, uh, yes, uh, it is globalized. Yes, the quantity of information is very large. And yes, uh, new practices are adding to this volume and uh, they rationalize and they justify the increasing use of AI. And that's why AI comes everywhere in our life, just because it answers a very growing problem in terms of the quantity of information that we need to process. David, uh, from a training perspective, so what are you seeing about AI from an applications and in practice? Thanks very much. And I think in the COVID economy, we've seen that training has gone from traditionally Excel into a Python first language. There's other architectures like the microservices and the containers with Docker and Kubernetes and other systems that have gone mainstream. Uh, Just this past week, I finished leaving an engagement for one of our hedge fund clients. And during that engagement, you know, I have all the students joined from top tier computer science graduate degrees. And traditionally, you would think they'd be coming in only with Java and C++ backgrounds. They all came in with Python knowledge. We're in a new world where Python is first. And I think that's allowing practical AI solutions. Uh, anything from you know building uh, experimentations in these systems like Jupyter and these notebooks, or going into scripting and building end-to-end models. It's an exciting time. And, and I think thinking with the business applications with a programming language like Python does enable practical AI. So great, David, uh, just following up on that one. Um, so you're talking about the implementation with respect to Python. Um, when we come to AI, there are a lot of three-letter acronyms or two-letter acronyms, a lot of terminology that gets floated around. Machine learning, deep learning, NLP, computer vision. So David, uh, so what are the, uh, can you just uh, clarify these technologies to the audience, please? I think what we've seen in the last few years is the growth and resurgence of both the natural language processing and computer vision as subfields of AI that have gone mainstream. So today, whether you're a hedge fund, a big fintech company, or a telecom, you're mining sentiment and analysis and interpreting the actual words that you're seeing from customers. That could be social media, that could be reviews, anywhere with text. 
And similarly, computer vision is having its heyday today. It's golden age where now uh, all of our new devices, whether using the Samsung Ultra 20, the iPhone 12, or even the Huawei devices, they all have machine learning chips that are enabling the edge analysis. So I think we're rapidly accelerating where these um, tools like NLP and computer vision are going to be mainstream in the next few years. There's many other use cases, but I always say if you can take the technology and apply it to the business, make it practical, that's where we translate those results. And that's what we're seeing in the COVID economy today. We're even seeing with restaurants, contactless payments, cameras for detecting infrared and heat sensors on if someone's temperature is below the radar. Uh, a lot of great technology happening out there. And I think we're going to see more of it as vaccines and other um, cool new technologies come live in the next few months. Hmm. So Jeremy, so following up on David, what other technologies or terminologies that you're hearing that people should be aware of in, within AI? Well, I, I do believe that, yes, those all those different disciplines of AI, uh, all those terminologies may be complex and people may not really understand what machine learning in which it differs from deep learning and RP computer vision. But there is a sense that uh, AI comes closer and closer to what we're uh, able to perform. Uh, sometimes there is the word augmented intelligence that comes in. Uh, and that's very much uh, interesting in terms of anthropomorphism around AI, because we're sort of giving to AI the senses or the capabilities to exchange uh, that are uh, that were in the field of human resources to begin with, such as the ability to talk, to exchange to a certain level, uh, to benefit from vision and to identify what's around them. Um, so augmented intelligence is really this notion of complementing artificial intelligence with the capability to extend the senses and to exchange with its environment in a much more flexible way. But I do believe also that notions such as narrow AI, which are about specializing the AI to various elementary tasks that the AI can bring added value to is of interest. The, 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 the term hybrid AI, which is really using AI with a variety of existing techniques that uh, allow it to, to, to multiply its value, whether it's an expert system that were uh, that have been around for now uh, 60 years, but are still very efficient and sometimes more efficient than AI at targeting uh, business practices. Well, when both of them are used in conjunction, the value multiplies. So uh, uh, hybrid AI has a, br a bright future uh, in, in many fields. Um, fog and edge AI also are new notions that have been emerging those two or last three years, but are very much of interest because we, we've been in a cloud computing world for the last decade and more, uh, mm -hmm. where the technology, uh, the electronics, the infrastructure didn't exist anymore. And we see that AI, uh, both in terms of uh, uh, coming into the mobile phone, into the IoT, coming into the infrastructure, and also requiring very specific emerging hardware to function, uh, has brought back this embodiment of technology. And so you find yourself with new terms such as edge and fog AI, because you need to deport the classification in the vehicles, in the mobile phone, in the uh, intelligent lighting for your smart city, uh, in the camera for your smart building. And so you find yourself with those, those notion of AI not being a centralized huge building with those views of Skynet or uh, things that were brought by science fiction, but something that is integrated in your everyday life 
and yeah. that will be in your pocket, it will be in your watch, it will be everywhere around you, and there will be this capacity to exchange with you, exchange by voice, and also classify and process a number of information before it gets back and centralized for the decisional intelligence. And that's a good thing. And paradoxically enough, that's a good thing also for privacy because what gets processed and classified close to you allows the intelligence to be uh, depersonalized before it gets back to the central authority to be analyzed. So uh, that is also a progress for personal information. And uh, I will finish with the notion of deep data in terms of terminology. This notion that the big data that we've had around us, as Paul uh, illustrated, is very difficult to manipulate, even automatically. And AI comes in another role where it takes this big data and complements it with classification and metadata, et cetera, that gets added by AI. And you find yourself with much smaller data, much more agile, and you can associate it with the big data to augment the performances, or you can limit yourself to the deep data itself and bring extreme agility uh, to uh, the decisional intelligence production that is associated to those large volumes of data that get col collected increasingly on the field and in the real world. Hmm. So, uh, so we'll be covered, uh, yeah, a lot of new terminologies. So Jeremy, that's good. Hybrid, fog, edge, and in deep data as well. So Paul, from a practical perspective, you know, as you're work, uh, working around in Solvay with the organization, now, what is that you have to do to educate the rest of the organization to really bring them up to speed as to what you're working on, how AI can benefit, benefit your organization? See, well, thanks, Ramesh. So um, just a bit of a preface. Uh, there are instances where I have a real tough time in, in, in calling it artificial intelligence and using AI. And I realize that I'm swimming upstream here. Um, you know, historically, there was the, the meeting in Dartmouth in the summer of 1956, mm -hmm. 64 years ago. When I, liked, so I think it was John McCarthy from Dartmouth, Marvin Minsky from MIT, and Claude yeah. Shannon from Bell Labs came up with the term artificial intelligence. So I'm hardly the one to say, no, that's not such a good term. <laughs> Clearly, they've used it. Right. Um, to the point that, Jeremy, you made, I like the term augmented intelligence, because in my day-to-day -day activity, I don't believe that anything I do is artificial. If I'm building a predictive model, the model is real and can be used. There's nothing, uh, um, it, it's not a vapor that will that will just leave the room. Um, David Donahoe from Stanford is now using the term recycled intelligence, saying that there's not new data, it's not being created, but rather we are recycling the intelligence that exists and perhaps reformatting that intelligence so that it is fit for use. So to your point, Ramesh, or to your question, when I try to impress upon people that they that they can and could can and should come talk to the, the data scientists, mm -hmm. um, those who are in and it's all it is called an artificial intelligence group, those within our group, that there's there's nothing mysterious or magical that what we're trying to do in many instances, we're trying to corral the cats. We're trying to make some sense of available data so that it can be acted upon. Um, what, I, what I try to tell folks is use any of the words you'd care to, any of the terms you'd care to. At the end of the day, mm -hmm. my goal, the goal of my colleagues, is to prepare actionable insights. So at a place like Solve, you want to make a, the, the next best surfactant. How do you do that? And I think if we work backwards from the goal, 
then you can understand how what we do can contribute. And so it's, it's very much not an answer. I, I like to think I'm not building the destination, but I'm providing the map. And if, if you carry that analogy one step farther, um, I'm uh, just northwest of Philadelphia. There are a number of ways of driving to downtown Philadelphia. And so any group, any team can take a number of paths, but the idea is you know what the destination is. And so with all the terminology, to me, it, it has to do with, with the action at, at day's end. I'm sorry, Jeremy, please. So I'm going to ask you guys, I think that this is a frustrating discussion. So David, you uh, what's happening uh, with the students coming in, generating the, uh, all the emerging hybrid and uh, edge and foggy action on the release planning. We have really covered it down to another, but one thing that I'm taking away from the discussion is depending on if it's good or not, but you, know, you have to focus on the actionable insights. What are the business insights? That is where I think David also That's a fine point for the products. I, I do apologize, Ramesh, but there there may be a connection. Uh, there there may be a connection uh, issue there. Uh, I didn't catch maybe fifteen percent of what you said. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, so, uh, okay. So let me just. Uh, so, okay, can you uh, guys hear me? Okay now. Okay now. A little bit better. So I can switch oh, the connection. Good. Okay. Okay. No, no, it's good. It's okay. it excellent. Right. So with that, uh, let's go into the second uh, part of the discussion here. Uh, with, uh, and then actually this follows up with uh, you know, a, a, a question from the audience. Where should they start, right? Within the organization, if they want to do AI, where should uh, they start? So David, with you, let's start. Uh, where is the starting point? Is it a lighthouse project? project? Or uh, how do you advise people to start with an AI product? So I think it starts with experimentation and experimentation can be two places depending on the resources at your team. If you are an engineer led organization, you might be going straight into code using languages like Python and different frameworks like TensorFlow or PyTorch to directly code and build your models. If you're not an engineer-led organization, you might be going for out-of-the-box systems like H2O, DataRobot, and other cloud systems like AWS, Azure, and GCP tools as well. So that's one thing I definitely mentioned, that you can get started either way, and there's a lot of great training resources to help you skill up there. Beyond actually um, directly running into the models, I definitely tell all learners and all students who I've worked with on capstone projects that it starts and ends with the data. The classic phrase that many of us have heard, garbage in, garbage out, is that data needs to be high quality, it needs to be robust and strong to use. And so I mentioned that it's not only about having great data, it's about having good data warehousing. It's by having good in-memory performance speed so that you can quickly conduct models and you can scale up your efforts to deploy, whether that's a web app, whether that's at a terminal in a store or for a customer, uh, on their phone or mobile device. So there's definitely many ways to get started. Uh, I think it definitely thinks about uh, the digital strategy of, of your organization resources. Great. So Jeremy, uh, with your perspective as a provider of solutions into this marketplace, 
what do you suggest organizations do? Well, you know, uh, David uh, traced uh, two different approaches that are absolutely, I will support his division. Uh, I think there is uh, uh, an AI that is getting more open, that is using democratization techniques such as the language, and Python came up very often, and I do believe, I do agree that this has been a great vector. I've been in the Python community for decades now. Uh, I started to use it at the end of the 90s. Uh, and uh, I, I couldn't be happier to see the AI make globalized uh, use of it because once again, it is a, an easy to learn language. It has very interesting characteristics, but also, and I think mainly, it is present in many data sources ecosystem. And so it's used in GIS, it's used in open data, it's used in CAD, it's used in medical application, it's used in all those fields. When I started, I started using it in medical application for general electrics medical system. And since then I've used Python in a variety of environments. And what it enables to do, yes, it enables to democratize the practice of AI, but also it allows to plug into those different environments and that's extremely powerful. And so there are other languages that have been emerging for AI. I think one of the advantages of Python is its versatility and its ubiquity in a number of industrial fields, uh, which allows an access to data. And I will support also the point of David that yes, you need clean data, that's obvious, but you also need performances. And there, that's where Python meets its limitation and needs to be complemented. And that's why you see Edge AI, Fog AI, that's where you see on-premises and learning rigs that are not in the cloud anymore. That's where you see appliances such as the one that I uh, that I work to on, on a daily basis because you need performances. AI uh, brings back uh, application that are very computation intensive, that crunches a lot of data. And that's where you see this embodiment of technology come back, whether it's the mobile, the IoT, uh, the, the smart uh, objects that are uh, invading our everyday life for the better and the worse. And also the back, the return uh, with a vengeance of high-performance computing and all the different techniques that support high-performance computing. A GPU that's been around since the beginning of the 2000s that is coming back with a vengeance. And new families, TPUs, uh, are, are, are emerging with different capabilities. And also, you know, uh, processors. And I don't think it's, it's a hazard. Uh, I don't think it's by random if we see uh, a very meaningful uh, mergers such as NVIDIA and ARM because there's there's an entire ecosystem there uh, that is a match made in heaven uh, for AI and that marries for computing capabilities, uh, hybrid computing capabilities that are different from hybrid AI and edge computing capabilities on the mobile or the IoT and that's an entire ecosystem that is at the heart of current and future digital transformation. Yeah, that's great. So Paul, um, next from Within the organization, I don't know if you your starting point was a, a language or was your starting point was a business case. Can you uh, tell, uh, you know, based on your experience as an advice to other people, where should they start with AI projects? Wow, um, both speakers, Jeremy and David, nailed it. In in what you what you can go after, what you should go after. Clearly, it's the data. Mine, um, a, a, a few points. Um, in starting a project, not all data is big data, and you don't need big data to do machine learning or AI or data science or mm -hmm. any of it. Um, allow that anytime you can help a colleague better understand their data, um, you're on the right path. Uh, that might be 100 rows of data, it might be 100,000 rows of data, 
It might be more data than you can store on a machine of, of, of great size. Uh, so it all matters. Um, to your point, I think the best place to start any of the experiments is with a conversation to understand what uh, a customer, a client, what someone wants at the end of the day. How are they going to do the next thing? Um, are they looking for a predictive model? Do they want a dashboard? Uh, do they want to get their hands dirty as well? And would they like to have some code that they could also use in the next iteration? Are they coming to you so that you can write that first bolus of code for them? And then afterwards, they'll just plug and play, take out the data set they first gave you, put in a new data set, and they'd like to have it under their own control. So understand what an endpoint needs to be. Mm -hmm. um, to the point, uh, a big fan of Python and the sorts that we, the sorts of work that I do are is also a major player. And with Markdown, the idea again of notebooks, um, one great place, oh, and one, one thing that when you first ask the question, Ramesh, is yeah. if you want to start a success, okay, uh, editorializing, if you want to start a successful campaign, use local data. Is a data scientist, is a machine learner, somebody doing AI, um, with all due respect, we don't need to have, I'm, I'm not looking for someone to talk to me about the Titanic data set again, or to go to Kaggle and essentially regurgitate almost a data set that has been well tread or well used. Because I also think that people within your organization will come to better appreciate what you're trying to do or will be waiting for your answer when it's data that's near and dear to what they're trying to accomplish. So then you become a collaborator and not a contractor. So in starting a project, always try to stay with parochial data, however big it is, however small it is. And I tend to be, I think, language agnostic um, okay. in that there are some instances where ours ggplot does a really great job in getting me the diagrams, the figures that I need. Um, I really prefer Python notebooks, the, the, the Jupyter ecosystem, because it affords me an opportunity to, to build compendia, uh, documents that I can share with colleagues that have embedded the, the analyses. So um, I'll stop it there, but it's just, I would always start with a conversation so that you understand what somebody is looking to do with their data and then use their data in demonstrating your abilities. Great, thanks, Paul. Um, so, so far we've been talking more from a large enterprise perspective, right? How they can use AI and benefit from it. But there is also this notion that the small and medium businesses, uh, you know, they can also benefit. So is there a question that we should answer about how, how do we rationalize the AI beyond the large enterprise? How do we democratize uh, it for uh, you know small and medium businesses? Uh, so, Jeremy, do you have any take on getting easier access to AI beyond the large enterprises? Well, I, I think I'm not going to make you uh, jump from your chair when I'm I'm going to use the word uh, digital transformations. Right? <laughs> uh, uh, I think uh, there we have a wonderful opportunity to introduce AI, and that's not. Uh, that's not by random that uh, AI is becoming uh, a widespread notion now and something that everybody talks about. It's true that we're having talks here about Python, et cetera, that are far from business, but uh, it exemplifies that AI is much easier to deploy. And I like the term parochial, that's what we just talked about. 
it goes a little bit further. Uh, if we look at the digital transformation that is being, uh, it's happening right now in the small and medium businesses. It, it's everywhere. It's pervasive. And what it does really is, uh, yes, streamline, optimize operations, but it, it, it's, it's also producing decisional intelligence that was just in the big enterprises, that was just in the large entities until now, and now starts to be in the small and medium businesses. It is in... Uh, the Microsoft uh, 365 environment, you find it in Office, you find it in SharePoint, you find it in tools that you didn't find it to begin with. It, it is integrated in a lot of software. And during the digital transformation, because the objective is to bring decisional intelligence, even in a modest way, you prepare your data, you prepare an ecosystem that is very favorable to introducing AI. So this AI is introduced in small pieces and in small components inside everyday software that everybody almost uses, and the data gets organized, the data gets into a critical mass uh, and integrated with an history of emails, of practices, of bills, of commercial information, uh, and even addresses, you know? You get addresses, you can do wonderful uh, things with them. So you, you start to have this corpus of information, and once again, parochial, like Paul said, something that is very close, very pragmatic, very very close to the to the everyday operations and through the digital transformation you find yourself with the prime matter where uh, ai is going to be able to happen uh, which is this data this history all the all that digital information that you can start mm -hmm. working with and it's a step-by-step -step approach but when you come to small and medium businesses they may have the instinct to think, oh, we're not there yet. We don't have the data. We haven't prepared our operation. We don't see yeah. the immediate benefit. And they're much closer to getting the benefits of those approaches than they may think, because they are in this digital transformation shred and cycle. And we can plug very efficiently and very pragmatically uh, uh, everyday applications of AI and automation or hybrid AI into this. So, and also the mobility trend and the mobility introduced as a tool and remote work that is a post-COVID world reality uh, also generates a lot of those information, a lot of those digital threads. And once again, I see it as an opportunity for AI to enter in the businesses and not only the large one, but the small and medium ones. So David, on your podcast, Humane, or on your training, uh, what's, uh, what's your take on SMBs and then going beyond the large enterprises with AI? What do you hear? In the new economy, small and medium businesses are our lifeblood. That's where all of us shop every day, all day. And the new business is a contactless business. It's an online only business. And small and medium businesses need to be able to implement AI, even if they can't hire a software engineer or a data scientist to build these systems. Use cases that have gone live since COVID are incredible, the pace of AI adoption. We can look simply at sites like Square and Stripe who process payments. When COVID started, Square rolled out free online sites for all merchants. Stripe ensured there were additional fraud protections to prevent chargebacks, so merchants would receive quicker payments to their accounts when every day, every dollar can make a difference if a company stayed open or closed. We've even seen for companies that have gone online to create their own websites, today you have platforms like WordPress and Squarespace that let you build your own conversational bots as no-code solutions. Hmm. You install a plugin and from there you set up the conversation you want so when customers approach your site with FAQs, 
If you don't have your customer agents available on demand, the bot's always there. So I think we're now in a golden age of AI where integrations are not only code, but they're also no code. And a lot of these platforms are enabling small and medium businesses to continue keeping their doors open and their lights on during COVID. Hey, actually, that's a, it's an interesting perspective, both of you, I mean, all of you brought, which is there is this myth that it's AI is for large enterprises, but all of you guys are saying it's not there. The time is right now. The tools are there, you know, all um, for SMBs to take advantage of. There is a question from the audience here. I'm into software integration and building an e-commerce platform. Uh, in the platform, there are three basic sections, supply chain, CRM, and in the middle of this, the company internal processing. Uh, I don't know what the internal processing is, but uh, just wondering how one can use the capabilities of AI in this scenario. So if anybody uh, wants to answer this question, you know, raise your hand and we'll go to that. Uh, Jeremy, you want to go? Uh, and then we'll go to well, the panel later. I, I will just understand with the perspective, I will just answer with the perspective that I have in my technology. Uh, historically comes from the ERP and CRM world. We were a Microsoft Gold partner. We deployed the Dynamics products. And so the department that I, I created was in, in mind for advanced analytics and AI works in, in close relationship with those departments. And we do it uh, every day, day to day. I, I don't think there's a cookie cutter answer to the question from the audience, uh, personally okay. speaking, because it depends on your operations, of course. But uh, if you have a CRM, that is large, that is well-documented, that is well-maintained, that is well-curated, it is a tremendous source of information for uh, uh, descriptive, prescriptive, uh, uh, and predictive analytics. And, and those type of analytics, of course, rely on artificial intelligence and machine learning, et cetera, uh, to produce part of, of their decisional intelligence. Hmm. So I would say that right now in all those software, and I can speak of dynamics, uh, in the power platform, there are AI components that are coming and uh, through that integration that are producing or aiming to produce in the short term that decisional intelligence and to produce that uh, predictive and prescriptive intelligence. But uh, it cannot be one size fits all. It's not the same thing for a company that sells shoes and for a company uh, that provides services in this or that uh, uh, application. So there comes the role of the expert or of the programmability. And this is where those two words that we've been describing with Python on one end or R, and on the other end, uh, the components that are packaged in the software are coming to meet. And that's very, very blatant when we're talking about ERPs and CRM. You have a number of things that are prepackaged in terms of flow and connectors of information. And then at one point, you need to roll up your sleeve and you need to develop something that is close to the operation. And that's the reality of it. Um, David or Paul, any of you have any uh, other take on this? Anything else to answer? My, my take on the CRM part with sales is that you're always looking for not only automation of the sales process, like with conversational bots and, and uh, different drip campaigns and messages that you can create that are very canned, but also customized. 
But beyond that, it's also seeing how can you augment data into your sales process? Can you grab external sources to learn more about your customer, to know your customer, so you can better move through the sales cycle uh, and, and generate the, the goals that your business is aiming for? Uh, beyond that, on the supply chain, I think it's more about understanding how to optimize. So depending on what your inputs are, if those are physical products, you can use these languages we're talking about, like Python or other software, to run different scenarios and optimize and see what is the ideal outcome. What if a scenario like COVID occurs for a longer period of time? How should the ch supply chain be dynamic or adjust? Uh, and, and that could be predicting a V-shape or K-shape recovery. So definitely, uh, I think AI can be applicable there. Paul, anything else to add to this, uh, to what Jeremy uh, and David? Just, uh, just a few quick ones. One, in, in answering the earlier question and also the question that came from the audience, for those who aren't familiar with it, realize that um, a lot of these tools run on laptops. So if it was the idea just to start cutting your teeth or playing with it a little bit, whether it's Python or R or even trying some things that are web-enabled, um, I do 99% of my work on a laptop. I have access to much more powerful machines. There you go. <laughs> and phones as well. Exactly right. It's just there's an awful lot of power you probably already have. And some of the tools we've mentioned, R or Python, these are open source. So there's a fair piece that if you have that interest, you can almost start building up into some of the questions that are being asked. Um, my advice would be literally Google some of those very same questions because arguably you will follow in someone's footpath and they might already have some sort of a solution, maybe not tried and true, maybe not picture perfect that you, that you would productionize or you would sell the solution itself, but it may give you a few ideas as to how to handle your, your local concerns and how to handle some of your own data. So, um, you know, it's part of me back when, when the United States had a data science effort under, under Patel, there's, I remember this one poster and it said, make many things. And so the idea is to experiment, to try. And, you know, it's always like fail, fail fast, fail, yeah. fail, all those little, little bromides, but rather try something to see if it addresses your supply chain, try something to see if it works for your production site and, uh, and then make it better. But it's all, all of these are accessible. And then and I'll just close out because I remember I, I saw this one thing last week that I just thought was sort of hysterical and just realizing that uh, cloud computing means it's just somebody else's computer. <laughs> you know, there's no, there's, no, there's no magic around it. If you, if you run something on the cloud, yeah. you're just running it on an external computer. So anyway, there you have it. <laughs> yeah. There's a there's a sticker that I have in the back of my computer that says that it's a it's a it's a, a, a cartoonist called Watterson I believe that did the original design for this uh, for this meme so yeah no it's very true yeah just to sum up that uh, answer to the questions to the uh, to the audience is that I think what I heard is that from a data perspective CRM if it's uh, data is solid so start with that one from a solutions perspective you know supply chain uh, is probably the start but depending on your current state assessment uh, so one of those two that that's what i said so now let's uh, segue into the next section which is the challenges right so i mean we talked about the promise we talked about the reality so the so we're still we are at the ground floor a lot of organizations even though 80 percent of the organizations are investing something in in ai but only less than 20, whatever, depending on who you ask, 
are actually realizing the benefits of AI. So Paul, let me start with you. Within the organization, you're a data scientist, you're experimenting with a lot of things. So what are the challenges that you're facing with starting AI products? Um, David hit on it, Jeremy hit on it. Um, cleanliness of data hmm. is oftentimes one of the biggest hurdles that you always have to curate your data in some manner, shape, or form. Uh, anecdotally, uh, the number of times that I will get um, a phenomenally pretty looking Excel spreadsheet that I then have to deconstruct because I want the numbers in the cells, not all of the explanations necessarily. And I think that goes one step back to a real good source of data, a single point of truth, whether it's a database, a data lake, what have you, but some mechanism that allows you to access data, clean data, valid data is, is one of the biggest challenges. Um, another can be reporting an outcome. Uh, there's a fair piece of AI. It always goes into the, it's a black box that I will give you a prediction, but I can't tell you why. So when you give me another use case, I'll run it through my, my predictor and we'll give you an answer, yay or nay. But fortunately now there are tools or th there are, um, Lime is one, Shap values another. There are, there are mechanisms that, that are now, so this is um, XAI, explainable artificial intelligence. And so it's an opportunity to go to a customer or a colleague and say, I am predicting in my world, I'm predicting this compound will be active, but I can tell you why, or I can show you parts of a molecule that are most that are that are contributing most to that activity so the two the two that i see a whole lot are are access to clean strong data one mm -hmm. and then secondly having done all that we do because it's very well characterized a lot of these algorithms is explaining it so that people can somehow again act on it yeah yeah so jeremy so uh, where are organizations failing are they able to start the projects but not reap the benefits or are, are they unable to sell the AI projects with an organization? What are you seeing? Well, I, the question of data is key, that's for sure. But uh, I, I will pass very fast because we've already explained that very well. And uh, okay. uh, all my colleagues, uh, myself, I brought to the concept. But the second thing I believe is um, what problem do you seek to address? And that's very important. Uh, uh, I've seen organizations that told me, but my, I have 98% efficiency. What am I going to gain by using AI? And that's very valid. You, you cannot use AI just because it's trendy yeah. if there's no problem to solve. And, yeah. and I, I've seen that time and again. You, you need to ask yourself, is AI going to bring me a better solution? And then am I going to be able to use that solution? Because there's a big problem with AI. Uh, in a lot of the disciplines that are using AI is that you cannot demonstrate AI. You cannot prove, you cannot prove AI, okay? It is uh, in its core through the statistical approaches that you're using, through the use of data, it, you're gonna be able to demonstrate a statistical efficiency to the trained result that you've obtained. And you know, I've worked in expert system that can be demonstrated from start to finish. I've I've signed a, a operation on, on subway line in Paris where, you know, we were applying a, a formal method that were demonstrable from 
the, the start of the specification to the, to the line of code at the end, you cannot proceed like that for AI. So if your problem is for a flying hardware and you want to use AI to pilot a plane, you're, you're going to face problems because you cannot demonstrate with absolute certainty that what you're going to produce in terms of AI with a lot of the conventional methods is going to work 100% of the time. So for medicine, for transportation, that brings a whole lot of new questions. You can use it to support decision, and that's all fine and dandy, and that's going to work very well. But you cannot use it to take the decision themselves because that raises security question with terms of demonstrability and also ethical question because it's 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 linked to uh, health, it's linked to ethical questions. So analyzing the question and deciding whether you can go or not using AI for that specific application is key. And, and uh, Europe has been uh, uh, at the forefront of developing standards with respect to ethical and moral questions of applying uh, AI with respect to those particular considerations. And there's wonderful documents that I invite the audience to consult if they have to ask themselves those questions. And we can add the references if you need. And then, can you do it? Is it feasible? And there, feasible in terms of budget, feasible in terms of infrastructure, feasible in terms of, 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 of uh, computing capabilities. And, and so those three questions are very important. The data is very important. You need to have a question where I, I can help you and help you uh, in all aspects. And then you, you need to be able to develop the system in an efficient way to answer your question and to industrialize it. So very often the failure relies on one of those three issues or, or a combination of all three. Sometimes the project fails because all three were uh, bound to fail from the beginning. So that, that at least that's what I've seen in my direct experience. Yeah, so David, I know we covered the ground. Unless you have something to add, we can go on to other questions. So do you quickly, do you have anything to add to that particular about the challenges faced by the organizations? What I'll briefly echo is there's a reason why Microsoft spent over a billion dollars with OpenAI on accelerating yeah. models and compute. Because I see the big issue for enabling AI is an infrastructure issue. It's about faster compute, faster analytics, and faster reporting. And to get there, you have to understand how data warehousing, how computer engineering uh, for parallel systems, and how streaming of data can be more efficient. I think it's a NoSQL problem. I think it's a big data problem. And I think it's an uh, infrastructure. If I may, uh, I think infrastructure is part of the solution. And I'll just stop there. It's a larger problem, and we use NoSQL. We use all those techniques that you just alluded to. But if your infrastructure is not adapted, uh, you're going to face problems. And virtualization uh, for uh, shard-based technologies, for instance, doesn't work very well, as you know. So mm -hmm. infrastructure is there. It's, it's a part of the solution. So David, uh, following up on that one, so there's an audience question. It's a totally takes it in a different track. Actually, we can have a complete session on this particular question. But let me introduce that question. Uh, with everybody starting to use AI more, what what best practices are there to secure the use of AI, right? So this gets us into the ethical AI topic, and it, it's a very deep dive. But let's see if we can address this at a you know, uh, high level, at least for today. Yeah, high level, uh, I work with a lot of organizations with a lot of sensitive data. And so securing the use of AI, I think there's two things you can think about. 
First, it's that privacy. Uh, we're seeing that with GDPR in Europe. We're seeing that with CCPA in California in the US. So you want to be sure that you anonymize your data. You want to be sure that any of the data that leaves your internal data lake or delta lake actually is set up to not be traced back to its source. And when you can set up the different checklists for there, I think that's really helpful. Uh, Carnegie Mellon University actually has a data governance checklist that you can actually literally check off the boxes to make sure are the humans doing the right things? Are we asking the right questions? I think everyone on your team should be having these conversations from the data scientist to the ML engineer to the software engineer to your business stakeholders and lawyers. Get everyone involved early on and then you can create the best security so there's less data leakage and less legal problems down the road. So Paul, uh, you've implemented some uh, solutions in your company. Uh, what's your take on, uh, did, did this come up, this question? Yes, yeah, and to the degree it echoes exactly what David was saying, that it's the, the security is addressed to the data, not necessarily the code. Um, again, because a lot of the code is, boilerplates may be an oversimplification, but much of it's the same. Um, and so you don't really protect that, or there, it, it's hard to imagine what would be the consequence, but how one protects the, the, the data. To demonstrate data provenance is, is, is very important uh, for us. So if data comes through the door, who has had access to it? How have they used it? Have they shared it with anyone? And how are they reporting on that data? Mm -hmm. Anonymization is critical. What can you strip away and still have some record or identifier that, that at least can work back to the original data set? Um, but the idea of, of securing the data and at every step being able to demonstrate the provenance of, of how and who's using the data is, is critical to uh, security on our side of the fence anyway. Hmm. Hey, Jeremy, you're an expert in cybersecurity and data governance of AI, so uh, your take, please. Um, I would take a different approach to this. Um, I think data is key to train AI, but once it's trained, it doesn't contain any sensible information as opposed to conventional approaches. So AI, surprisingly enough, is much more protective of personal information than any other technology that I know of. The second thing is AI is instrumental in protecting the networks, in scanning the logs, in scanning the infrastructure to enforce the security. So AI is not a danger to personal information. Uh, AI in many ways is the answer, and AI is a chance for personal information. So I want to defer myself from all the Orwellian visions that uh, AI is, is, is a, an attack to uh, personal information. And uh, I will add a third consideration. When you apply AI at the edge, then you anonymize information. You introduce privacy by design. And the information that you communicate over your infrastructure does not contain necessarily any more uh, personal information. So yes, AI is something to consider in terms of morale and ethics. But it's also a wonderful tool to introduce new answers to cybersecurity to data protection, to data regulation, we spoke of GDPR. And so it is an opportunity. And I want to position that positive note there because the public uh, has very often the adverse reaction to it. And that is just not true.
Yeah, so there's a lot of discussion on that one. So you have a different take that it's not just a problem, but it can be a solution as well. That that's uh, good, uh, Jeremy. There. So let's. Uh, so we are about 50 minutes into the discussion. So let as a last question for today's panel. So David, let me start with you. Uh, what's in the future for AI? Uh, so much investment going into it. When we're looking at AI from 2020 to 2030, I think of the future of cities and how the world changes. And the big wrench that we've seen, of course, has been COVID. Uh, we've gone into a world that is mask first, where AI can no longer recognize our faces. We've gone into a world where we're doing contactless payments that you need additional um, provenance to be able to verify identities. So I think we're going to be moving into a world that is more requesting permission for trust and requesting permission for security that we didn't see before. Mm. We're moving into the world where bad actors are creating deep fakes. They're creating systems that uh, copy our voices, copy our faces, and copy our images without our permission. But it's not all doom and gloom. There's been new open source projects that let you spoof the deep fakes open source projects to let you verify your identity and to take back your control. I think the next decade is going to be one where AI will live everywhere. And whether it's from the smart audio devices in our homes and our workplace to being in our pocket, everywhere we're going to be interacting with text, with voice, with video, and the data is always going to be on. I think it's up to us to be responsible with that. I think a lot of that's what we've driven this conversation with. And it's also to share that data to enable new possibilities. If we want countries like the United States and the European Union to come out ahead in the race on AI, it's mm -hmm. about the data and it's always been about the data. Interesting. So definitely you're a strong believer. It's not going to vanish. Vanish. It's not a hype. It's real. So good. So Paul, to you as a practitioner, what are you seeing in Solvay? What are you seeing in the industry? What's your take? I think it's being democratized, that the access to the tools are, um, th there are no barriers, there are no impediments. And so I think the challenge presented there is, is upscaling, having a workforce that knows how to use these tools, that appreciates that whatever their former training is, they can learn how to use a Python notebook or a Markdown notebook with their data and then use that to inform their next set of decisions. And uh, you see that in some parts of the industry already. Uh, any number of organizations have internal universities or schools where they're helping their workforce learn about the tools, when best to apply the tools, and essentially to join the cadre of folks who are using AI, machine learning, uh, as much as they've used Excel, as much as they use different instrumentation in, inside their laboratories. Hmm. So Jeremy, if you can bring us home with uh, this question of future trends, what do you see? Um, first, I want to echo Paul's uh, comments on democratization, it's everywhere. Uh, the new generation of mobile devices, the new generation of engineering tools, the new generation of manufacturing, the new generation of vehicles, the new generations of uh, city appliances and equipment, all of those are containing by default tremendous new features and tremendous new computational power. Uh, they all have processors in them. 
the cost has have been decreasing dramatically. So yes, uh, it is going to be all around us because the possibility is there, and uh, humans are, are are designed that way that they're going to use those capabilities. Uh, and so uh, there's a bright future for those technologies. Uh, I think uh, companies and businesses will have to take those waves in order to succeed, in order to be competitive, in order to be at the edge of uh, their game. And I don't want to get back into the details, having the right fog, edge AI, having the right mobile and IoT practices, having the good digital transformation practices are going to be key. And AI is part of those ecosystem. It's part of the entirety of all those practices that we've described. So I think there, uh, we've covered very much that that sense, but we also talked about moral and ethics, and we're talking about decisional intelligence. And what who talks about decisional intelligence in a post-COVID world or in a COVID time talks about decisional intelligence, talks about taking decision for public health, for population, for government. And and so I'm not Orwellian in that sense that uh, I don't think I think AI is going to support decision making, and that's very that's very good in that sense. But I think also we will need to see uh, uh, global data and global economy and global information having to be processed by AI in an automated way. And we'll need to leverage the human organization and we'll need to leverage the human government to be able to interact with those new tools and those new decision-making uh, processes, but also the new question in ethics and morals that it, that it raises. So it's going to have to be a, a, an iterated process between the humans and the AI, because I, I think the new possibilities that are there, they're very good uh, if they are well-regulated and well-structured within the institutions. So there's going to be an adaptation process, and, and it is a necessity in my view. Thank you very much, uh, guys, uh, Paul, David, and uh, Jeremy. So for the audience, uh, I hope uh, you liked uh, today's discussion. Um, please take a minute to give us your feedback. Uh, that will really help us in structuring the future episodes. And also, there is an episode every month. Uh, so starting today is the first episode, as I mentioned. So there's November one more, and then going forward. Please do sign up for those future episodes. And then, then lastly, uh, there are a couple of attachments uh, that you would see in this one. One is a AI a primer, a primer on AI, and the other one is a A to Z, uh, the glossary of AI, right? So feel free to download those attachments. And then uh, please do let us know uh, about uh, this particular session. So David, Paul, Jeremy, thank you very much. That was extremely informative. Thank you. Thank you for having us.